Simmons K. Takwaye now presents Shadow of the Fox, Part 2, from the Shadow of the Fox Trilogy by Julie Kagawa. MNK Talk YA. I'm Marissa Snyder. And I'm Kitty Bradford. And this is our Young Adult Fiction Podcast. And this week we finished the first book in a trilogy by Julie Kagawa. Uh, we are reading uh, The Shadow of the Fox trilogy and we just finished the first book. Yeah, so we're a third of the way there. And honestly, I thought that we would be at a different place at the end of the first book. I thought that we would make it to the wind temple or whatever or the lost wind temple what is it that we're looking for steel feather temple the steel feather temple i thought we'd make it to the we started at the wind place okay i am obviously confused um but i thought we'd make it to the steel feather temple and then there'd be more to our journey in the next few books so i actually was like oh it's over (laughs) well yes a lot of unexpected things happened actually in this second half still a lot of demons a lot of yokai and a lot of adventure happening. Um, where do we want to start? We also have more allies now, too. But I guess, should we start with where we left off? We left off in this creepy village. Or yeah. it was a very friendly village, but almost creepy in its friendliness. Too friendly. And we were wondering why. And we found out, I think this was in the second half, that even the like guest house they left them in didn't have a door that closed. That was the final yep. straw where I was like, something is about to go down. <laughs> And you called it. Your prediction was that they were going to be sacrificed to something, and you were totally dead on. <laughs> no pun intended. So, <laughs> um, we meet some new supernatural creatures called Gaki. Yeah, they were really interesting, though. Like, I think I was expecting more of like a demon or a monster, and this was not that. I loved this actually. I did this too. idea it reminded me of. Um, like the legend of a Wendigo, if you're familiar with that. It's like, so there's spirits of greedy or wicked humans who died and they're cursed to return with eternal hunger. So like they have this like ravenous appetite, but no matter how often they eat or how much they eat, nothing will satisfy them. They're like in a constant state of starvation, um, which is like totally like the Wendigo legend. So I thought that was really, really cool. So what is the Wendigo legend? Tell me a little bit more. Oh, um, I don't know why, but my sister and I are kind of like fascinated with <laughs> the Wendigo. <laughs> There's a couple... This doesn't shock me at all, and I know nothing about it. <laughs> There's like a couple versions of what it is, but it's it takes its root in Algonquin tribes in the forests of like Nova Scotia or like uh, Canada, like northern, the northern U.S. And essentially it's like a, a monster that comes back and it is insatiably hungry and it's it's greedy and sometimes they say it can take the form of like a skeletal like deer on two legs or sometimes it's a wind spirit so but it's like the common theme throughout is that it has like a hunger for human flesh that can't be satisfied yeah and there's like a legend too that that humans can become like touched by the wendigo and become cannibals themselves Mm. Um, like if you're possessed by a wendigo spirit i don't know why this is like one legend that my sister and i are both like super fascinated by but it reminded me of these gackies well yeah i i agree i like love the whole story behind it too even just this idea of like if you're greedy you come back like you're not satisfied in the afterlife kind of too like there's something poetic justice there as well but but yeah, so it started with a monk who came to the town generations before, and the town had been blessed, so they always had plenty of food, but they were like really possessive of that, and they were afraid that someone was going to take it, so they never helped travelers back in the day, and this monk was just asking for like a bite to eat, or like literally, or drink of water, anything, and he like begged for three days, and no one helped him, and he died, and now, or when he died, they he cursed the town and now anytime anyone in the town dies they come back as one of these gaki and is it true that like other gaki would be satisfied with regular food but these gaki are only hungry for humans oh that's a good question 
I think these ones, well, these ones are definitely only satisfied by human sacrifices. Yeah. Because that's the whole point that, like, the village wanted to keep our characters, you know, happy. And they were kind of, like, feeding them a lot to kind of, like... I don't know, fatten them up or something. Or like make themselves feel better, Uh, maybe. Like, oh, well, at least we like sent them out happy (laughs) and full. But I liked that Yumiko was able to talk to the monk. She has this like, she's so naive, but she also has this like wonderful quality where she trusts everyone she meets and just has this belief where like, if you talk to someone at their level and like understand why they're unhappy or understand their problems, like you can come to some kind of resolution. <laughs> and uh, so she just talks to this monk and he's like, you know, I was ready to like, stop this curse years ago, but I just can't figure out how to move on. <laughs> Which was so funny. And the, uh, the guy, like the mayor of the town or whatever they call him, had never asked either right like he was like oh if we leave we come back as gaki if we die we come back as gaki i can't even kill myself because then i'll come and like torture my family and like had never even thought to like try and talk to this monk and well also like the monk kept disappearing yeah yeah it wasn't easy yeah yeah so tatsumi like used his shadow magic to like disguise them so they could like creep up on the monk um so he wouldn't disappear and they just had like a nice civilized conversation and figured out what the root of the problem was and then they bring him a bowl of rice and the curse is lifted because that's all he wanted was just a bowl of rice yeah (laughs) and the town probably learned their lesson and would still be nice Mm -hmm. to strangers but give them a door for their house next time yeah exactly all was well i agree that that was one of my favorite little stories i think even in part i guess part of it didn't really relate to the rest of the story because the gaki weren't sent there by someone trying to get the scroll and in some ways it's almost like oh why did we even need that but i just thought it was such a cool legend and to your point really demonstrated how her talent is asking questions and like having sympathy and empathy and not being easily discouraged and just trying to do the next right thing or whatever. Which is so different from from Tatsumi. Oh, yes. And even Okami. Like, Okami's just kind of like, well, let's just shoot him and be done. And Tatsumi is, you know, a little bit bloodthirsty as well. And, like, they both just want the quickest means to an end where Yumiko's like, you know, let's treat them, let's treat everyone like humans and, yeah. you know, show some compassion. Or even once they defeated them once they were like we should just get out of town we survived like let's get out of here and she's like no we can't leave the town like this like Mm -hmm. we need to help them so yeah I I do like even though yeah like you said it wasn't crucial to the plot it was a really nice scene where you like learn more of their characters and a great way to showcase more Mm -hmm. of Japanese folklore yep and then we get to part three so we get another peek into what's going on with Lady Satomi and the who's our little spirit friend again? Suki. Suki, right. Um, this was so horrifying to me because I have a very, very severe aversion to centipedes. Really? Yeah. I don't think I knew this about you. Oh god. Ever since I was really little and I I had this really cute Humpty Dumpty lamp that was in my bedroom and it had like little blocks you would turn to like turn the lamp on and off. And I remember I was really little and I went to turn the block to turn the light off and my hand came down on something and I pulled it up and there was a centipede on it. But not only was it a centipede, it was an albino centipede, which if you've ever seen, uh, don't look it up because it's horrifying. But I was so traumatized by that. And now like centipedes, I can't look at them without like gagging. Oh my goodness, that would be so traumatizing. It would be traumatizing to me today. (laughs) It was horrifying. And... So this scene where, like, Lady Satoma uses her blood magic to summon a giant centipede. From her arm. Didn't she, like, pull it out of her arm or something? Yes. I just can't even. Like, I had to skim those chapters. (laughs) (laughs) Because it was so awful. But we did learn a little bit more about this blood magic, which I thought was interesting. Mm -hmm. Anyone can use it, which is pretty cool. And the blood kind of fuels the magic so the more blood you spill the stronger the spell but i also liked that although anyone can use blood magic there's also a price for using it Mm -hmm. so the more you use it the more of your soul of your soul you give away until you're like a husk of a human and then eventually you're consumed 
by basically evilness and you become one of the you become an oni essentially or a demon um and you're like doomed to serve jigoku i think is the lord of the underworld yep um Mm -hmm. and you're like doomed to serve him for the rest of your days yeah and we learn some of this because tatsumi and yumiko realize that one of their enemies out there unidentified at the time like they start to figure it out Mm -hmm. because they kill the dead crow or whatever right right and they're like hmm someone's after us and is using blood magic and i think yumiko is like oh i feel like they're after the scroll this could be bad yep and okami's just like this seems like a really bad idea i mean (laughs) (laughs) i love okami okami's like starting to be one of my favorite characters He's been one of my favorites since he arrived. I actually like want, I hope he has even more of a role in the future books because he just has such a, he's got like that like snarky, he's, he could be a pirate, you know what I mean? He's like our pirate roguish, (laughs) not quite a prince, but I I also like really want to learn his backstory, like how he became Ronin. Um, I'm really curious about that, but I love how like at every scene they're like, Okami, you really don't have to be here. Like, you can leave. And he's like, well, I don't have anything better to do, so I guess I'll just stay. <laughs> and again, I, lo- I this is like what I love about pirates, too, and now Ronins, is they sort of are like, oh, I don't have a code of honor. You know, like, I sort of do whatever I want, but they actually, like, secretly do have a sense of loyalty and... You know, and that, like, I love that dynamic of sort of, like, I don't follow the official rules, but I do have this kind of actual moral code hidden deep below that I'm not going to admit to, but does kind of guide my actions. That's sort of how I feel like he operates, so. I agree, and I kind of like how you see him almost becoming more and more honorable throughout the book. Like, I feel at the beginning he, you know, kind of was, like, only looking after himself and like didn't really care about anything and like you kind of see him like starting to care about Yumiko more and like wanting to be part of the group and like it almost seems like his moral code is shifting like the more time we spend with him which is pretty nice yeah but I think it's twofold too I think Yumiko as we mentioned even with um the Gaki and stuff she's asking questions and like having empathy and like helping him develop that side but I also think while he maybe to your point, is developing more of an honor code. It's not like the traditional samurai honor code, which he, I think, does not approve of based on whatever this backstory that we haven't heard yet. Like honor just for the sake of honor. Like even with um, the new member of our group that we meet here, we see sort of like this sort of twisted honor where it's like, oh, I'm going to challenge you to a duel to prove that I'm good at swordsmanship, which means we have to duel to the death. And it like, just like, it's sort of, a weirdly twisted honor code that the samurai seem to have in his perspective. Mm -hmm. And he, I think, is trying to sort out like what he doesn't agree with from that and what what true honor is and how to embrace that side. Totally. And so, yeah, let's talk about Onino Mikoto, the the demon prince. Which, again, another great name. (laughs) Such a great name. And I love his MO is that he just challenges people to duels on bridges. Well, didn't we read about in some legend? I don't even remember if it was a Japanese legend or not, but someone who kind of did that? Yep. Ben K. It was in my research a while back. I think it was when we were reading uh, Winter of the Witch, that series, right? Yes. Or The Bear and the Nightingale, whatever the first one's called. Oh, he defended a bridge. Anyways, it doesn't really matter, but there, it, there was something about that that felt familiar to me to some other legend. But again, it's so interesting to see this samurai honor code sort of play out because, again, Tatsumi isn't a true samurai. He's been disguising as a samurai, but he's not actually bound to the the same code and honor rules and all of that. But this new guy definitely is. And he it's just so funny to hear some of his arguments where even now part of why he's joined the group is he wants to ensure that Tatsumi lives enough to finish their duel but he honors that he has a promise that he has to keep first so he's like keeping him alive in hopes that he'll have the chance to kill him later (laughs) I well and he I don't know this whole scene where they're like fighting this giant centipede together because like the centipede interrupts the duel and I just I like his character so much because he's like super excited to fight Tatsumi because he wants to fight against the sword Kamigurashi because this like this legendary sword he's like super gung-ho to fight against this sword and then the centipede attacks 
and they like have to join together to to destroy this centipede and then as soon as the centipede's dead he's like okay so we're still dueling right like he was completely unfazed by this like giant armored centipede at least he like paused the duel to attack the centipede yeah i guess so (laughs) um but yes now the duel is just postponed and so now he's convinced that yumiko is an unmoji who is like a fortune teller essentially or like um a prophet but like a really res- well-respected one. Right. Yeah. And so now he's accompanying them on their journey. And we also learn that he actually is part of the royal family, the imperial family. He's from the first chapter. He's the flute player, right? Yeah. He's the one who was like really nice to Suki at the beginning. And his real name is Tayo Desuki. So he's now joined too. So we have, again, uh, that comparison to wizard of oz yeah makes so much sense to me because we keep like finding someone and like sort of bringing them into our group Mm -hmm. and we sort of have this witch out there that's sending different people (laughs) i don't know it just it really does remind me of like a japanese wizard of oz right now i totally agree i just don't understand why onino makoto like he's an imperial prince or at least related to the royal family and I don't understand like why he can just leave and like stand on bridges and challenge people to duels like well it sounded like he was the third son of like a distant cousin or something so it sounded like his two older brothers both had certain expectations that they were fulfilling like I forget one had gone to the religious side maybe and one had I don't know, but it, it was he was sort of like, as long as he does what he does well, he could sort of do whatever he wanted, is what it sounded like. Sounds like a nice life. <laughs> yeah, but it, again, how, what a funny thing to just go around challenging people on bridges. And to your point, part of the legend, and we even see it in our encounter with him, is he'll pick one person in the group who's like the most deserving. So it's sort of an honor to be picked, but then every other person has died. So it's also sort of a curse you know mm-hmm. like oh I think you're the most worthy but I'm still better than you so I'm gonna kill you um <laughs> it's just like this funny there's something like catch 22 about the whole thing that I love mm-hmm. um and we also kind of collected another character when they go to find the head priest of the Hayate shrine they meet a shrine mm-hmm. maiden named Rika and she immediately recognizes Yumiko as Kasuni. She figures everything out. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> super, super smart. Um, Yumiko was told to find Master Yiro at this shrine, and Reika says something really alarming. She was like, well, Master Yiro was summoned to meet with Lady Satomi, and he never came back. Do, do, do. And we already know that Lady Satomi is bad news, but they didn't know that yet, necessarily. So yeah, everything's starting. I guess all of our various narratives are starting to have linked up by the end of this book yes they absolutely are and I don't know I think the more I think about how Julie Kagawa wanted to create an anime with her writing and like make an anime but in book form the more I keep just seeing parts of this book and thinking like oh my gosh this would be so amazing to see like in an animated film like especially with Rika I love the magic that she uses yeah with her little scrolls Yeah, she has this, like, paper magic where she'll she'll write, like, a word on paper and then, like, the paper, like, flares with energy and then she, like, hurls it at things. So she wrote, like, purity and it, like, broke a barrier and I just, I I love that. I thought that was, like, such a cool part of her character. Well, and we've already seen sort of the dark side of, you know, we've seen creatures from hell and we've seen blood magic happening it was kind of nice to see sort of the flip side which feels like this like good true religious belief and like and like pure magic yeah and we saw cho or Chu. <gasps> oh exactly the little dogs that were yeah, like guardians also one of my favorites and reminds me of toto just because there's a dog oh now God. but <laughs> yeah and i forget what the other dog's name was the one who Co. was already missing yeah who followed the priest basically and was trying to protect him the whole time and I just love this sort of again it's just a nice comparison we've seen good people so far but it's sort of nice to see and I guess we've seen sort of indifferent spirits but 
it's nice to see sort of this like protective group as well I don't know yeah well I also like the dogs because they have this like very cute form that they assume the majority of the time where like you know no one really pays them much attention but then they transform Mm -hmm. into their like true for their true form and it's these like ferocious half dog half lion characters yeah I love that so much well, I love how they just go back and forth a few times. Yeah. Like, remember when they finally, like, are leaving and they run into, they run into Yabarama again? Or they ran into... Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, no, they ran because... into Hakamono and the dog got big again. And then the priest is like, no, we're going to, like, use the protection spell. I need you small so that I can, like, cast it big enough. And then he shrunk back down to a little yeah. puppy. And Yeah. Yeah, so the whole group goes to the emperor's moon viewing party to try and find lady satomi and figure out like what is happening to master yuro and she leads them through a mirror she uses blood magic to like lead them through a mirror and they end up in this destroyed village and that's the same village i think where the first scene like this is where suki's been the whole time or not the whole time but since she was killed right i think so because it's the sky clan and I think we learned that, like, Lady Satomi needed so much blood to, like, raise this demon that she needed, like, the blood of the entire village. So she essentially, like, raised this entire village and, like, sacrificed everyone to summon this horde of demons, I think. So that's what I didn't fully understand, because I thought when she killed Suki is when she summoned the demon. But I guess she killed the whole village and Suki was just, like, the final piece, maybe? Maybe. But we do meet Yabarama there. Yep. Oh, we also learned that Suki, the official name for what Suki is. So she is a Hitodama, which is a human soul that lingers. And that's different from a ghost. Yeah, I actually should have done more research on it. Because we also, even when we read about the Gaki, yeah. heard there were multiple types of ghosts, right? So there, there are a lot of things that can keep a soul or part of a person who's been killed around mm-hmm. on Earth. <laughs> but yeah, so she's, she's part of the soul itself. So we have this massive battle against Yabarama. Several, yeah, with multiple battlefronts, if you will. <laughs> yeah, we find Master Yuro. We see Yumiko using a lot more fox magic, I think, which is interesting. Because she had no choice, and now the whole group knows that she's Kitsune by the end of this book. Because <laughs> yeah. her ears are visible, and she can't hide them again. <laughs> or because she used her magic, they're not fading. Yeah, and I'm interested if, like, in the next book, there will be there will be a change to her character because in the beginning we learned like the more you use your fox magic and the more you like give into it, the less attuned you are to your human half Mm -hmm. uh, since she's half Kitsune. So I'm curious like if it will start shifting her character now that she's like really embracing her fox half. Well, and she's been continuing to play pranks throughout. I saw it more the second half, especially with Okami who kind of deserves it sometimes, but you know, she would like... (laughs) hide a pine cone and make it look like a speck of dust under his bed after he ate all the food at dinner. Or I think there's another example, something like that, where she's kind of been doing these small tricks. And then even when she's trying to prove that she is uh, the prophet, I forget the word for it. Oh, like an oracle, yeah. Yeah, she creates a rabbit to appear to like make her prediction come true and and whatnot. so. So she's been using it here and there, even without making it super obvious or actively like publicly relying on her fox magic but yeah this battle she totally went there and like she said it was the first time she had fully explored how much she could do right yeah because the before the monks always kind of cautioned her against using it and like you know were discouraging um, yeah not really allowing her to discover her full potential I love that she did that thing with the reeds and made like, or not even duplicates, more than two, multiple versions of her group so that the little demons didn't know who was real and who wasn't. That was super cool. But then we have this, (laughs) the very end. Oh man, I did not expect this to happen so quickly or I guess yet. We have a scene where Tatsumi is about to be killed by Yabarama. He's like stepping on him. And the demon inside his sword is freed. So Hakimono is unleashed now. 
Um, and we learned that the reason he was able to escape was because Tatsumi has been thinking more about Yumiko and lost control of his emotions. And the last thought he had before he was going to die was of her. And that thought was enough to make Hakimono take control. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> now we have Hakimono who's like in Tatsumi's body and Tatsumi can still hear everything that Hakimono is saying. But basically this demon is in Tatsumi's body and he is like ready to create chaos and he runs away. <laughs> yep. So now I'm just like, oh gosh, what is going to happen now? And I think he wants something too, right? Because he used to be like the biggest, baddest demon in hell or something. Yeah. And uh, Yiro actually says that he'll explain that backstory. So I'm hoping in the next book we get that because he was like, yes, there's a story about Hakimono and the sword and the Lady Hanshu of the Shadow Clan and how they're all connected. So like, I'm super excited to hear that story. Yep. And then at the very end, we had another surprise that I was not expecting to happen this quickly. Yeah, totally forgot who this guy was. Segetsu. He was the one who warned her about the weasel things, right? Yeah. He warned her about the Kamatachi who were with the Wind Witch, Kazakira. But but he just made such a brief appearance that when he finally like showed up at the end and kills Lady Satomi, huge, I was like, who is this guy again? I had to like go back and figure it out. I'm so glad that we have all these things kind of tie up because I think I mentioned it in our last episode where I was like, we've had all these characters appear and I don't know where what they're doing or where they're going to go. I was like, does the guy who plays the flute matter? And it's like, yeah, now he does. And I was like, does the old guy who just showed up for no reason matter? Yeah, I seems like he does too. So um, I'm excited about it. But I was not expecting Lady Satomi to just be gone, especially because right before she was killed, we hear that she was uh, she's talking to that skull some lord that she's working for and she also was planning to betray the skull it sounded like so i thought she was going to continue to be sort of a bad guy but now she's gone and what was the skull like was it the skull of i have no idea jigoku maybe but now she's dead but i'm wondering if maybe her ghost will linger i mean i don't know she and even if she's dead her master whoever the skull was probably has other people who work for him right i would think so i don't know either but it did get kind of exciting at the end where even though i thought we'd get to the um i forgot the name already steel feather temple (laughs) steel feather temple even though i thought we'd get to the steel feather temple i do feel like several things did kind of tie Mm -hmm. up and we again we have a lot of things changing because now everyone knows she's kitsune tatsumi has been taken over by the demon our main face of the enemy is dead so there's yeah there's some interesting things happening yeah so do you think the whole group is gonna stay together like do we now have a band of (laughs) how many i lost count at this point (laughs) i know Uh, we have yumiko tatsumi's gone so bye uh okami Okami. reika uh demon prince dude the priest hero and then the two dogs yeah chuko so I'm curious if they're all going to go or if like one from the temple will go with them and one or two of them will have to stay home. Maybe. I don't know. I kind of want them to all stay together though. I kind of do too. And I really like Reika, so I hope she stays. Yeah, me too. I think if I had to pick a scene uh, to see on film or like on the big screen, I would want to see Reika using her paper magic. Yeah, that would be cool. Not the centipedes. I think seeing that whole scene where her and Yumiko are fighting the demons in that one room, because I'd also love to see like the reeds turning into Mm. duplicates and these little demons kind of sound cute in like a terrifying way. I don't know, like the big ones (laughs) I'm not really into, but the little ones just seem like they're sort of dumb and they're like all colorful (laughs) and just part of me imagines them as kind of adorable at the same time. Yeah, I would like to see that too. And and like the scene where, like you said, Yumiko makes like a ton of different versions of her to confuse them. Like that would be really cool to see visually. Yeah. What'd you research this time? Well, I was very surprised about Hakimono coming free from the sword. And I just, I think that is my favorite idea or theme from this book. Just like the idea of a possessed sword and like someone chosen to wield it and like having to control your emotions so the demon doesn't take hold of you. 
Mm-hmm. And like even just the fact that Hakimono says no human was able to to get control of himself again, like once they're possessed. So terrifying. Um, so I researched legendary swords. Okay. Did you research this too? I also, <laughs> well, so I looked up, I was more interested in like how the sword was named Kamagoroshi, but the demon was named Hakimono. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I was looking at like swords with names. And sort of the myth, like, legends behind named okay. swords. So there probably is a lot of overlap, but it wasn't exactly the same thing. But you go, share some stories you found. Okay, stop me if I get to one that you were going to share. Um, the first one that I researched was the legendary um, sword in the stone from Arthurian legend. Mm-hmm. Um, so there is evidence that, like, the origin of a sword in the stone might be real. So there's a chapel in Montesiepi, Italy where there's an ancient sword embedded in stone. So according to legend, there's a saint. Saint Galgano was a 12th century Tuscan knight. And according to legend, the archangel Michael commanded him to stop being sinful. And Galgano was like, well, that's going to be as hard as cutting through stone. And so he didn't want to stop being a sinful person. So Galgano attempted to prove his point by breaking his sword on a rock. Um, And legend said that his blade actually cut through the stone as if it were butter. And so the sword in the stone still rests where Galgano left it behind along with his sinful ways. (laughs) Um, And then I guess Saint Galgano was canonized and word of the sword spread quickly and it became known as like a holy sword that, you know, created this miracle where he was able to chop through the stone. Um, So the legend of Excalibur is like, comes way before this tale but um, I was gonna say I didn't know that that inspired it but it's just kind of similar I guess yeah. is what you're saying yeah mm-hmm. okay cool so where is where can you see it you see you can still see it today right it says that it is in a chapel in Italy yeah that's so cool I also just love this again goes to this sort of like oh yeah, God or an angel or whatever is asking me to do something that I don't want to do. So I'm going to make this challenge to God. Oh, that would be as hard as insert something you think is impossible. And then God's just like, okay, go for it. Let's see. (laughs) And it happens. (laughs) Um, The other one that I looked up was the curse of Maramasa. Mm -hmm. So this was a Japanese swordsmith who, according to legend, prayed that his swords would be great destroyers. And because his blades were of such good quality, it's said that the gods granted his request, and the gods gave every sword that Muramasa created, uh, the gods gave them a bloodthirsty spirit. And according to legend, if the sword was not sated after battle, it would drive the wielder to commit murder or suicide. So I thought this was like so interesting. So there's these swords that are like kind of have a life of their own and they're so bloodthirsty that like after battle, if they're not if they're not satisfied enough that they will turn on the person who wields it. That sounds exactly like the sword in this book in some ways. <laughs> yeah. So I guess there's a ton of stories about the wielders of these swords going mad or being murdered. Um, all of the swords were believed to be cursed and they were banned by imperial edicts. And the, sh- the shogun, actually, who banned all of these swords, he made this edict because the swords killed nearly all of his family. Oh my goodness. Yeah, so his, the shogun's grandfather was killed by a Muramasa sword. Um, his father was wounded, and then his wife and his adopted son were both executed by the supposedly cursed swords. Well, that would, I would think I'd also probably lean passing a law like that. Yeah, <laughs> I would agree. Well, they say that, like, I don't know, that's just like the legend. They said that, like, Muramasa wasn't the name, I mean, it was the name of one man, but he also founded, like, an entire school of swordsmiths. So he, he made so many blades that, like, they so many of them were used in killings that it's, like, not really a coincidence. It's not, you know, it's like, if someone says, like, oh, I was killed by a Toyota, like, okay, well, there's just a lot of Toyotas out there, you know? <laughs> yeah, that's fair. Oh, this is interesting. Okay, so there is 
a sword that you've probably heard of. It's called the Wallace Sword. So it's based off of the character William Wallace from Braveheart. Which I haven't seen. Have you ever seen Braveheart? I know. Isn't that crazy? (laughs) Um, Apparently, he used human skin for his sword, scabbard, hilt, and belt. Gross. Um, And the the flesh came from a man named Hugh de Cressingham, who Wallace flayed after defeating him in the Battle of Stirling Bridge. Mm. Yeah. It's gross. I don't know why he was so into, like, stealing people's skin and doing weird things with it. But, um... (laughs) essentially like had all these parts of the sword made from human skin he used skin for like the sword belt for saddle girths and then eventually king james the fourth sent the sword to have all of its parts replaced with um, something other than skin and i guess the sword now rests in the national wallace monument so i read something about the wallace sword but it wasn't all the skin stuff which is just gross i read about how large it was Oh, wasn't it like a claymore? It was 2.25 inches wide at the base, 5 feet 4 inches long. The blade itself was 4 feet 4 inches long, and it weighed almost 6 pounds. 4 feet long? Yeah, 4 point, or four feet 4 inches long. Oh, oh my god, that's insane. That's only 8 inches shorter than me. Some experts think that Wallace had to have been over 7 feet tall to wield a sword like that. Holy crap. Wait, it was only six pounds? That seems light to me. I don't know. Like, wheel, like the way you wield a sword with one hand, that seems like a lot of weight, doesn't it? No, I don't, it doesn't to me. Like, I can, like, swing around a five-pound weight, and I'm pretty tiny. For, like, a whole battle? I guess not, like, a whole battle. But, but think about, like, a seven-foot guy with, like, massive muscles. Like, that'd be, like, nothing. Well, I also think that it's four or how long was the whole sword not just the blade five feet four inches long like it, I, I just feel like it would be unwieldy but maybe yes I think it would be unwieldy yeah maybe it isn't as heavy as it sounds I'm just surprised <laughs> that like a sword that big would be that light that's fair um the last one that I read about was the sword of Gujan. oh yeah this one's cool oh this is so cool so like in 1965 a sword was found in a tomb in China and it was over 2,000 years old, but there wasn't a spot of rust on it. Mm-hmm. It was completely untouched by time. Even though it was in damp conditions while it was buried. Yeah. And it was still so sharp that it drew blood when one archaeologist like tested its edge on his finger. And they also found that like the craftsmanship was really, really resilient and like the etchings were still visible. And the etchings said that it was a sword belonging to Gujan, who was a king who had uh, a collection of swords appraised. And and there was only a single sword of merit among all of his swords. And they said that it was so magnificent that it was said to have been made with the combined efforts of heaven and earth. That's so cool. And they said that like... The reason it was in such excellent conditions was because the swordsmiths at that time were so advanced in levels of metallurgy that they were able to incorporate rust-proof alloys into their blades. Hmm. And they also were like treated with like rust-resistant chemicals. And I guess also the scabbard of the blade was completely airtight. So there was like no oxidation that occurred. That's cool. I know. I just think that's amazing. It is now regarded as a state treasure in China. I believe it. So those were all the ones that I had. What were some other swords that you researched? Um, so the Ami no Murakumo no Tsuruji, which means the sword of the gathering clouds of heaven, was it's a Kusanagi sword, and it's one of the three imperial regalia of Japan. So the other two are... Yasakani no Magatama, which is a jewel that represents compassion and generosity. And the other one is the Yata no Kagami, which is a mirror that represents wisdom. And according to Japanese mythology, this was created by the goddess sea and storms, Susanu. She found the sword and the body of an eight-headed serpent named Yomata no Orochi, which he ended up killing. But the story of how he killed the serpent was also kind of interesting. So there was a family who had eight daughters and seven of them had already been eaten by this eight-headed serpent 
Jesus. And it was coming back to attack the last daughter. So Susanu came up with a plan to defeat it. But what he asked for in return was the daughter's hand in marriage. So he asked for eight giant vats of sake to be put on these different platforms with a fence and a gate, like with each one. So there were eight separate like locations. So the monster took the bait and put one head through each gate. And then he attacked and chopped off each head. Huh. And then he was going after the tails and he found the sword and the fourth tail of this eight-headed creature. And he gave it to his sister, Amaterasu, who's the goddess of the sun. And she, in turn, gave it to Emperor Keiko's son, Yamato Takeru, who defeated his enemies with it. And there are just like a ton of legends about how powerful it is. Some say that the sword could control the wind and... Some now say that it was lost during the Battle of Danuro in the 12th century, but others claim that it's safely protected and is a Japanese treasure, and the priests refuse to show sacred treasures to the public, so it kind of remains a mystery if it hmm. exists or not. But whether it's whether we still know where it is, it was a big piece of uh, Japanese like folklore and mythology and history. That was kind of interesting. So cool. Yeah. Then there was... Durandal, which is the name. I just love the naming of swords. I don't know why I find it so interesting. I was reading this one article about how people have traditionally named swords and ships, but not like trains and airplanes (laughs) and stuff. And it was just like, yeah, that is kind of funny. Like, why do we name certain things? And it part of it had to do too with like when we start to give inanimate objects human traits like names and how we think about them differently and people would feel like a partnership with their sword and same with like ships they would rely on their ships to protect them when they were out at the mercy of the ocean and it was just kind of like an interesting thing to think about all the naming and stuff but it was also funny the article was like and people don't name their cars but I actually know a lot of people who do name their cars so Mm -hmm. I don't know I don't name my car though anyway so this uh this sword Durandal there was this guy Roland who served Charlemagne the Roman emperor in the 8th century, and he supposedly had this famous sword, a gleaming white and stainless sword named Durandal, and it is said that the sword had four sacred relics in its hilt made of gold, so it had a piece of St. Mary's robe, strands of St. Dennis's hair, some of St. Basil's blood, and a tooth from St. Peter. Whoa. Which, like... it's a lot of relics. How cool to have four saints' yeah. relics, right? Yeah. You got the power of God behind that sword. <laughs> The origin of the sword is still a mystery, but there's this poem called The Song of Roland, where the sword is described as abnormally sharp and indestructible, and Roland supposedly won many battles with the sword, and supposedly even cut an armored soldier in half with a single swing of the sword. Folklore claims it exists and is now embedded in the cliff wall in Rocamador, which I think is where he was defeated, but in all likelihood it was destroyed in battle, but... Very cool. Oh, kind of cool. I just like, again, what would you name your sword if you had a sword? So I took a test um, online. I have to find it again. I'll send it to you. But it's a test to see like what your sword would be named. Ooh. And my mine was so horrific. It was called Hell's Scream. <laughs> Wait, that's awesome. <laughs> I know. But like all of my other family got like really not cute names, but like less intense names and then mine came out and it was like hell scream <laughs> i was like Gee. i feel like if you're gonna have a sword though it needs a name like that not like a little intimidating yeah i mean <laughs> i would hope that the legend like having an intimidating name would like scare off people from even wanting to battle with me and then i wouldn't have to use my sword that would be my goal with the name yeah like the wielder of hell scream <laughs> <Yeah>. approaches <laughs> As opposed to in this book, I guess people are like, oh, I want to battle you and see how well I can do against your demon-possessed sword, but... I'll send it to you. Awesome. Yeah, I'll take that for sure. Um, I did take your quiz on whether or not I was oh. a samurai or a ninja. Yeah. What did you get? And, uh, oh, I definitely got samurai, <laughs> like, through and through. I think because I have, like, an overactive guilt complex and, like... I don't know. My moral code is strong, apparently. Is this an overactive guilt complex? Is this something that you diagnosed yourself with? Or is this something you've heard in your life before? Um, according to my therapist. Okay. 
<laughs> it sounds so legit. Yeah. So yeah, I'm definitely a samurai. I would be the one who would have to adhere to my my code of honor again, like above everything else. I really wanted to get ninja, and I even feel like I sort of cheated because some of the questions, since my research, I knew some of the questions, what they were saying, and I still got samurai, but I think it gave me a percentage. Didn't it do like a percentage or something? I was like closer to the middle, but I was still on the samurai side. Oh, I don't think I got a percentage. Mine just came back. Samurai, samurai, samurai. <laughs> <laughs> You're just a samurai. Well, that's that's cool. Yeah, I'll take it. I mean, realistically, I was never going to be a ninja. <laughs> Realistically, I would never be either one. I'd be a farmer. (laughs) I would be a peasant. (laughs) I'd be, yeah, I'd be a bad farmer is actually what I would end up being probably. Should we uh, talk about the next book yet? Let's do it. Or do you want to say more about this one? No, the next book in the trilogy is is called Soul of the Sword. Which I'm excited about. And as you just talked about, I'm sure you are too, because the sword and the demon that possesses it is this really interesting concept so I'm excited to see more about that yeah and we got to there's a a nice breaking point in this second book we're gonna read up to part two yes uh do you want to read the back okay 1000 years ago a wish was made and a sword of rage and lightning was forged Kamigarashi the god slayer oh okay so it kind of has another name um a weapon powerful enough to seal away the formidable demon Hakimono now he is broken free Kitsune shapeshifter Yumiko has one task, to take her piece of the ancient and powerful Scroll of a Thousand Prayers to the Steel Feather Temple in order to prevent the summoning of the Harbinger of Change, the great Kami Dragon, who will grant one wish to whomever holds the scroll. But she has a new enemy now, more dangerous than any she has yet faced. The demon Hakimono is free at last, and he has possessed the very person Yumiko trusted to protect her from the evil at her heels, Kaje Tatsumi of the Shadow Clan. Hakimono has only one goal, to break the curse of the sword and set himself free to reign chaos and destruction over the land forevermore. To do so, he will need the scroll, and Dumiko is the only one standing in his way. Okay, I still have questions about this scroll, though, because everyone's going after the same piece. Do you have to, like, collect them in a certain order, or are there only a couple pieces missing, or how many pieces is it? I think you just need all the pieces. Okay. I don't know how many pieces there are, but I think that you need all of them to summon the dragon. Because then in some ways, part of me thinks you just, instead of going to where the other piece is at this other temple, you should go just far away or destroy your piece or hide or do Mm. something else. But I guess she needs the monks to help protect it. So, or at least that's the belief right now. I guess I was more nervous earlier whenever I thought... I thought that Tatsumi was going to have to kill Yumiko because there was that scene where like his shadow clan summons him. Oh, yeah. And they're like, okay, why are you traveling with people? You should not be doing this because you put them in danger. Like, and they're putting you in danger, right? They were like, the more you allow yourself to empathize with people and feel emotion, like that puts you at danger of having Hakimono possess you. And he finally convinces them to let him carry on traveling with these people. But at the end, his master was like, fine, travel with Yumiko. But at the end, when you get the scroll, you must kill her. Yeah. Well, Hmm. also good point though. His whole clan is probably going to be trying to kill him now because he's lost control, right? Isn't that what they do? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So their job now is to like, kill him not to get him back in control of the body but to get rid of it right and then transfer the sword to someone else i guess i don't know how they're gonna put hakimano back in that sword but yeah i don't know either it'll be interesting to see more of the backstory for this legend as well which hopefully like you said we'll get Mm -hmm. at the beginning of this book okay should we keep reading yeah do you think we'll get to the steel feather temple by the end of book two yes okay (laughs) i do okay i have a joke for you Okay, perfect. Let's hear it. This is from my brother-in-law, Ben. Oh, great. He's the one you text jokes with? Yes. I call him my brother-in-law. He's really married to my cousin, but my cousin is pretty much my sister as well. So I call him my brother-in-law. Anyway, um, thank you, Ben, (laughs) for this joke. Okay, two satellites decided to get married. The wedding wasn't much, but the reception was incredible. (laughs) Honestly, that's all you need is a good reception anyways. (laughs) All right, here's the other one. 
I did a theatrical performance on puns. It was a play on words. (laughs) (laughs) I've been laughing all weekend every time I think about what happened to us. So we just went on a socially distant getaway up north and we were kayaking in Lake Powell and James flipped his kayak while I was asking him to take a selfie. And he kept my phone out of the water, which was awesome. And then he decided he would climb back into the kayak, like, in the middle of the lake, even though he's never really kayaked before. And I was like, this seems like a bad idea. Why don't we just go right there to the shore and get you back in or whatever? So I was trying to help him. And I had bought us these waterproof things to put our phones in. So I put mine back in in my case. And then his was in his case. And he... Tried to get back on and then flipped again and it was so funny to watch. But somehow his phone got disconnected and he just assumed it would float even though the thing didn't float. So his phone is probably protected from water but at the bottom of Lake Powell right now. And he he does not like that I just keep looking at him and then laughing about it. But that's been my, it's not really a dad joke, but fun story for everyone. Maybe it'll be like so tightly encased in this (laughs) protective device that it will be rust free in 2000 years. (laughs) Yeah, they'll find it. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) We should name it now. (laughs) Create a legend. Yeah, really. Okay, well, uh, if you guys want to get in touch with us, you can email us at mnktalkya at gmail.com. We're also on Instagram and Facebook at mnktalkya. And we want to hear what you would name your sword. Yes, please. Don't take hell screen though. That's that's my that's, take that's in. dibs dibs on that, yeah. <laughs> All right. Bye bookworms. Go get a library card. M&K Talk YA is produced and edited by Marissa Snyder and Katie Bradford. Original music composition by Timothy Milkey. Logo design by Marissa Snyder. For updates and extras, visit mnktalkya.com or follow us on Instagram and Facebook. And if you haven't already, please rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes. We would like to thank James Tobias, Chad Snyder, Meredith Kelfie, and Michael Howard for all of their support. Thanks for listening, and see you next time.